G'day, I'm Glenn Davis, and welcome to The Policy Shop, a place where we think about policy choices. Tonight in Chicago, a college campus suddenly erupted. Police and protesters doing battle because political tensions have reached a boiling point. We have lost control of our borders completely as members of the European Union. And if people feel that voting doesn't change anything, then violence is the next step. Now, I find it difficult to contemplate it happening here, but nothing's impossible. You could put half of Trump supporters into what I call the basket of deplorables. Right? The racist, sexist, homophobic, xenophobic, Islamophobic, you name it. We have a country that's so divided that maybe even you don't understand. It's I've never seen anything like it. The tension between Trump lovers and Trump haters has been building for weeks. John McGraw told Inside Edition he'd be tempted to throw more than an elbow. The next time we see him, we might have to kill him. And let's get rid of the flag, the anthem, Brussels, and all that has gone wrong. Let June the 23rd go down in our history as our Independence Day. Today, we ask, why are we so angry? The human race has never had it so good. Life expectancy has risen by more in the last 50 years than in the previous thousand. When the Berlin Wall fell in 1989, two-fifths of humanity lived in extreme poverty, and now it's just one-eighth. Global illiteracy has dropped from one-half to just one-sixth in the same span of time. For the first time in human history, poverty is declining, and yet we've never felt more divided. A nation that for so long symbolised freedom and hope has placed a ban on refugees entering its country. A key member of the European Union is departing an institution established to bring Europe back together after a scarring war. Why, when we've never had it so good, are we living in an age of anger? Joining me on the line to discuss this, Professor of Bioethics at Princeton University and Laureate Professor at the University of Melbourne, the distinguished philosopher, Professor Peter Singer. Peter, welcome to the show. Thank you very much, Glenn. Is it anger? Is it insecurity? In your conversations in the United States, what's the underlying mood that produces this extraordinary political situation? I think it's a combination. Um, There certainly is some anger at the political elite that Uh, some Americans feel has not served them well, has not looked out for their interests and this idea that, you know, politicians are just concerned about themselves. Uh, So there's that. Um, There's also some fear about the future and the combination of terrorism and immigration is a pretty uh, explosive mixture when you think about it because you, you trade on that visceral reaction or here are these foreigners coming, they're not like us. And not just that they don't look like us, but they have these different customs and different religious beliefs and so on. And some of them might be terrorists. Um, so there's a kind of fear of that. And uh, then there's this, I guess, almost sense of grief, perhaps, for the idea that America is not what they'd grown up hoping it would be, believing it would be, that it would always be strong and progressive and going forward and at least some parts of the country that's clearly not happening and the loss of manufacturing jobs 
has been a problem. And, and for the blue-collar white workers, they are not getting the jobs and the good jobs with good conditions that they used to get in places like Detroit. So it's not surprising that they're feeling some sense of loss. So is inequality driving this anger? Are we witnessing the inevitable outcomes from the global financial crisis and from concern about the concentration of wealth in some societies? My reading of it is slightly different because in talking to Americans, and I'm particularly thinking now about talking to Americans outside the the academic bubble, uh, you know, talking to the cab drivers and other people that you meet with, in general, they were not concerned about inequality. In fact, Americans, to a somewhat surprising extent to me, had an idea that, well, if you've earned it, you deserve it um, and you ought to keep it. I think the idea that people were worse off than their parents had been, that the standards of living were falling for them, uh, not so much in relation to the 1%, but in relation to how it had been before and to how America could be, and the sense that uh, we were giving too much away. We were giving too much away to the Chinese in their trade deals that they could make things that we could no longer make. We were giving too much away to the immigrants, particularly the undocumented immigrants who were supposedly taking jobs that Americans could have done. Uh, I think it was more that sort of resentment than some kind of ideological resentment against inequality. So you've just given us a sense of the divisions in America, uh, and they also seem to be rural versus city, um, as well as potentially ethnic divisions. How should we analyse this? Do we think about this in traditional class terms? Do we think about it uh, in terms of of political identity? How do we come to terms with the fact that there are many different groups in America who seem to hold views that aren't necessarily those you might expect their interests to lead them to? I don't think the traditional class analysis of politics really works in America because uh, you get people clearly voting against their class interests in the economic sense. And we had this phenomenon. I don't think it's quite as strong with with Trump, but it's there. You certainly had it very strongly with George W. Bush, um, that people seem to be voting basically on religious lines more than uh, their class interests. I remember, I think the only person that I talked to at Princeton University who was going to vote for George W. Bush in 2000 was the janitor. and I remember having a conversation with him as he was coming in to empty my trash bins about that. And essentially, he said, uh, you know, Bush is a good Christian. Um, and he was didn't think or was. or uh, So so that was it. And, you know, basically the, the rest of it didn't count very much. Uh, Trump is clearly not a good Christian. And it's a bit surprising that some of the religious rights seem to have voted for him. Uh, but now he's paying them off by appointing a conservative anti-abortion justice to the Supreme Court. So maybe that makes sense in some way. But I'm not sure how you do analyse American politics, because it seems like there are so many shifting coalitions. And uh, the, you know, the, there's the sort of Tea Party, small government, uh, almost libertarians, well, some of them like Rand Paul are libertarians, and how they fit with these social conservatives, uh, and religious social conservatives is, is pretty difficult to see. But somehow, it's maybe it's a pragmatic alliance for them. Peter, anger is clearly winning at a time when we've never had so many tools to drive political and social engagement. What is the importance of these new forms of media? I think the the most serious one in the context of the US election uh, is the 
the wave of fake news that uh, a lot of people believed in. Um, and so what the media are do, what the social media are doing is that instead of having a small number of reasonably responsible media that people were getting their news from, you were starting to get all sorts of things being put out on the on the web, things that were you know just quite bizarre. And so I think there is now a problem in sorting out uh, what really is the reality and what is fake. And uh, that could be a problem, not only in that election, but in other elections elsewhere. As it has been in the past, in 1864, a misinformation campaign nearly derailed the re-election hopes of then-President Abraham Lincoln. But let's hear what um, recently departed President Barack Obama had to say about the role of the Fourth Estate, and indeed the Fifth Estate, in contemporary politics. In the rise of naked partisanship and increasing economic and regional stratification, the splintering of our media into a channel for every taste, all this makes this great sorting seem natural, even inevitable. And increasingly, we become so secure in our bubbles that we start accepting only information, whether it's true or not, that fits our opinions, instead of basing our opinions on the evidence that is out there. So we just heard Barack Obama calling out in his final address as President of the United States his concerns about changing ways people receive information and what they believe. In the USA, recent polls suggested that 50% of self-described conservatives rely on a single news source, Fox News, for the political information they're most likely to trust. Peter, is this retreat into bubbles that fit our opinions, a sort of echo chamber, debasing the idea of a political conversation? I think it is. Um, I'm not sure what can be done about it. Certainly not, not sure what can be done about it within the normal constraints of permitting freedom of expression, which I've always been a strong supporter of. Uh, yeah, I mean, Fox News was alarming enough in itself when, when you watch it because it does present a, a different reality uh, and some of the people on it are quite extreme. But it it seems to be getting worse still, as I said. I mean, these completely uh, fake stories um, – are also getting a fair amount of credence in some circles. I'm, I'm not sure where we're going to go with that. I'm not sure how we can again get back to the kind of national conversation that you can have when essentially, you know, if you go back to where I was first in the United States in the early 1970s, uh, spent a year in New York teaching at NYU, and pretty much everybody watched, uh, you know, one of the three major uh, CBS, ABC or, or uh, NBC uh, in the evening news, and if they, or they read the New York Times, or they did both, um, and that certainly isn't happening anymore. So uh, I, I thought there was clearly something good about it. There's also something bad about it. That if you know if something didn't make it onto those media, then it had no chance of being part of the national conversation. So I, I don't know how you can uh, avoid the problems of uh, effectively censorship, which we don't want. Um, and still get that kind of national conversation going. Peter, those channels from New York you described from the 70s were emblematic of a time when traditional journalism relied on, I guess, respected but certainly professional newsreaders as the arbiters of what seemed real and would be presented to the public as news. And that seems to have been swept aside by social media. 
where there's no particular value put on something that comes from the New York Times compared to the fake news you described earlier. That seems to me a fundamental dilemma for a democracy that does rely on some uh, um, some agreement about the facts in order to have a discussion about policy choices. That's true. Um, and, you know, in a way you could say what this shows is it vindicates those uh, analysts of democracy um, back in the 50s and 60s, I guess, uh, or earlier Joseph Schumpeter was the start, but then there was uh, Dahl um, and others who, who essentially said that uh, dem in democracy people choose between elites. And the idea was that the elites um, have some control over making sure that things go reasonably well. And of course, those analysts, Schumpeter in particular with an Austrian background, were looking back at the demagogues of the 30s and were favoring this system because the elites would not have permitted something like Hitler. Um, but now the elites have, have gone um, for technological reasons more than any other. Um, and, you know, I don't want to make the comparison between Trump and Hitler. I think that's uh, overblown. Yep. Um, but still, uh, we do clearly have more uh, options for demagogues to gain power and to do so on the basis of what are essentially lies, as Hitler did. No one's burnt down the Reichstag, but we still have a real problem about how we have a public conversation around values and policies in this setting. No, uh, nobody has burnt down the Reichstag or, or the Congress building, but we don't know what crisis might occur in the next four years, and we don't know what the Trump administration might do to respond to that crisis and to what extent the restraints in the American system, which has had strong restraints from the separation of powers and the independence of the legislative branch and of uh, the judicial branch, uh, we don't know how well they would work in those circumstances. Can we spend a minute thinking about what this might mean for democracy? And I agree, it's not really about Donald Trump, but it is about changes to the the political system that matter. 25 years ago, I guess, political scientist Francis Fukuyama announced the end of history and the inevitable triumph of liberal democracy or liberal capitalism. And his argument was simple, that democracy would win out over all other forms of government because the natural desire for peace and well-being set nations on a path to progress from which they are unlikely to divert. A quarter of a century on, democracy is not looking anywhere near as strong. Is this about rejection fundamentally of democracy and liberal values? It hasn't come to the rejection of democracy and liberal values as yet. Uh, I think most people that I know, and I include myself, are still hoping that what we've seen with uh, Brexit and uh, Trump and the rise of the political right in Europe, um, that that's an aberration, uh, that that's going to go and, uh, you know, that we'll, we'll be back where we were. And after all, you could say the, the election of Trump was due to a combination of unfortunate circumstances and it could very easily not have happened, um, all sorts of things. The, Hillary's uh, email problem, the timing of the uh, FBI director's letters, um, a whole a whole range of things. Possibly the Russian hacking and intervention into the Democratic uh, Senate, and and you know possibly Hillary turned out to be the wrong choice against Trump. A lot of people are saying that if Joe Biden had been the candidate, he would have won comfortably, um, and perhaps Bernie Sanders would have as well. So um, I'm not, I wouldn't give up on uh, liberal democracy as yet. But uh, 
things are not looking good. I, I agree with you about that. So in your most recent book, you did touch on the question of elections and indeed of compulsory voting as a sort of debate. In Australia, we take that for granted. We've had it for nearly a century, but it's, of course, anathema in many parts of the world. One of the often commented um, implications of the Brexit vote was the failure of well-educated people under 30 to vote, to engage, to be part of the debate. And if the opinion polls had been matched by the vote, that is, if people who'd been polled had also voted, uh, the Brexit outcome would likely have been different in the same way, perhaps, as the US election. So are we seeing a significant group of people who just see no stake for themselves in the way the system is now organised? It does seem that we are, but I'm... You know, they, people keep saying, oh, there's no difference. Politicians are all alike. I don't understand how they can say that when they, they look at Trump. Um, and for that matter, they, if they looked at, at Bush and Gore, and I, I remember uh, Ralph Nader, who was running for the Greens, was saying this in the United States um, when you know, there, was, there was something of a movement because people realized the election was close. And there was something of a movement to say, look, Nader should withdraw since Nader, you know, had no chance of actually winning. Uh, he should withdraw from the key swinging states, including Florida, which turned out to be the key. And his answer was, uh, look, really, there's no difference between, you know, the Democrats and the Republicans. But obviously, there was a big difference between Bush and Gore. Um, there would have been a big difference on climate change. Uh, there would have been a big difference, I think, on uh, the invasion of Iraq, which is it was a very serious mistake that we're still living with and made possible the rise of ISIS. So I, I can't really understand how people can keep saying that, um, but but they do, or some of them do. Uh, and again, you would think Trump would, would wake them up and say, well, wait a minute, no, there is a huge difference between uh, the politics that we had before and uh, what we've got now. So uh, I do favour compulsory voting. I think it's worked well in Australia. But uh, as you say, it's not likely to come in in the United States and in some other jurisdictions either. So uh, I just wish people would realise that uh, it is important that they vote and that it's not voting that allows some of these results that they then later regret to take place. In the first couple of weeks of the Trump presidency, we've seen a substantial level of protest um, perhaps acts of civil disobedience, and we may expect to see more of those as the Trump agenda rolls out. How should we think about legitimacy and democracy and the rights of an elected leader such as President Trump to make the decisions, however unpopular with some? I think that civil disobedience is compatible with democracy and with accepting the democratic method of decision. In fact, you know, this takes me right back to my Oxford thesis, which was on uh, the obligation to obey the law in a democracy and later became my first book, uh, Democracy and Disobedience. Uh, and, and what I argued then, and I still uh, believe, is that uh, nonviolent civil disobedience is compatible with democracy, that it's a, a form of uh, protest to show the seriousness of your convictions, to show that you think important principles are being violated. And by... Uh, during the use of violence, you are showing that you do have respect for the law. And even as in you know, the classic form of civil disobedience as practiced by Gandhi and Martin Luther King, uh, even that you will accept the punishment for the offense. So that if the courts sentence you to prison, as for example, famously, Martin Luther King went to jail in Birmingham, wrote a famous letter from Birmingham jail defending civil disobedience, um, then that's what you do. You're showing your respect for the law, but you're showing the seriousness of your opposition 
to what is happening, to the belief that that is deeply wrong. And I think we're going to see more of that with the Trump presidency. I think what we've seen this week is probably just the beginning. It does raise an interesting question, doesn't it, about what are the constraints on the powers of a democratically elected leader. In uh, The Open Society and its enemies, Karl Popper started asking this question about how do we avoid situations in which a bad ruler, in his term, causes too much harm. And it goes again to your argument that disobedience and protest are entirely valid, violence is not. How should we look to constraints on any leader, not just this particular one? I think the constraints come from civil society. I think you need a strong civil society which can organise protests, can mobilise public opinion um, and eventually can influence the ballot box as well. And one thing that I would expect to see in the United States as the Trump administration goes on, and I'm sure it will go on uh, upsetting people, is that the uh, midterm congressional election in two years when the House of Representatives gets uh, completely re-elected and uh, a third of the Senate gets re-elected, um, I would expect that there'll be much more excitement and uh, involvement in that election than there has been for a long time because usually the turnout is quite low there and that's again benefited the Republicans often. But I think that might well change. I think people will be saying this time we can't let this go on. We have to have uh, a strong Congress that will be a restraint on the president. And that's the best way of trying to restrain leaders, of showing them that the public is organized, that the public cares about what they're doing, and uh, eventually that will unseat them. So institutional design really matters because if you're going to have a balance in the system, the institutions have to make that possible. Yes, institutional design does matter. And, and I think there are flaws in the U.S. Constitution, um, in particular the fact that Donald Trump is now there as president. Um, un unless he dies, he's there for four years, and uh, nothing really can change that. Um, no matter what happens in the midterm congressional election, uh, he will still be there, uh, and he will still be running the administration and um, appointing judges to the Supreme Court. So it's not an ideal balance, uh, but... I guess no system has an ideal balance either. In our system, a prime minister with a majority, uh, strong majority in parliament is also not vulnerable, at least for the you know, time until the next election. So, yeah, the, it's it's hard to find that balance and uh, different systems do it in different ways. It does prompt an interesting comparison, doesn't it, between parliamentary and presidential systems and the different ways they, they deal with controversy and indeed uh, choose and dispose of leaders. I think that... It's also relevant to uh, the kind of leader you have because, uh, as I've been saying to my American friends, you cannot imagine a leader like Donald Trump really in the Australian context because leaders are selected uh, by their parliamentary parties after uh, showing their, their skills and their virtues in parliament. I suppose you could get a completely outside party getting elected. I mean, we could imagine one nation uh, sweeping the, 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 that would be the equivalent of it. Um, and putting Pauline Hanson up there as leader. But that seems a much more unlikely event than what's just happened in the United States. If we turn from the immediate to the long term, in your most recent book, I want to quote, I am enough of an optimist to believe that should humans survive for another century or two, we will learn from our past mistakes and bring about a world in which there is far less suffering than there is now. So the optimist in you says 
even in a difficult moment, you can see a better future. I am an optimist, but I do think that we're in a very difficult time now. But the long-term trajectory of our species, uh, as I think you said in your introduction, has been upward, and it's quite strongly upward in the last 70 years, say, the period since the Second World War. Um, we have had uh, fewer people dying violent deaths than in any past era of human history, as far as we can tell. Uh, and that's despite the impression people have from the newspapers that, you know, things are chaotic, that terrorist attacks are happening here and there. But uh, if you look at it in terms of numbers, the, the, the chances of any individual dying a violent death at the hands of their fellow humans are now much smaller than they were in previous eras. And as you said, we're also beating poverty, we're beating major diseases in the ways that we haven't before. So all of that looks positive. Um, we have to get through this period where we're grappling with climate change and not quite knowing what to do about it, and this period of uh, uncertainty and anger, perhaps due to immigration and uh, some of those issues, perhaps due to changes in the economic, global economic system. Uh, but then I think, you know, I do think the problems are soluble and that we are continuing to make technological progress. The technological progress can bring about greater prosperity. That greater prosperity can be distributed in a way that reduces extreme poverty. And again, you quoted figures showing that that extreme poverty is falling to historically low levels. Uh, so, yes, I, I'm a sort of a, an optimist if we can get through the next 50 or 100 years okay, then I think we can have a long, long future of uh, prosperous and uh, rich, fruitful lives. Which is very encouraging, but I think it's important to say you're an optimist and an activist in the sense that you're not relying on others to do this. The organisation that you co-founded, The Life You Can Save, uh, is an important personal commitment to addressing the lives of people in extreme poverty what role for organisations outside government, organisations that are community-based, to make a difference here? I think organisations outside government are making a huge difference in a, a range of areas, and the Life You Can Save is focused particularly on extreme poverty and trying to uh, help people in extreme poverty and reduce it in the most cost-effective ways possible. And uh, non-profit organisations can be more flexible and more experimental, more daring than governments tend to be in their foreign aid, uh, also less influenced by political considerations. So um, there are some very good non-profit non organisations working against global poverty. The, the problem is that the general public doesn't really know which are the really good ones, and a lot of them have a sort of suspicious view because every now and again a big scandal breaks and it turns out that you know some uh, founder or CEO of an organization was uh, simply taking money out of the coffers of the organization and very little of it was doing what it was supposed to do. Um, so people get this negative idea. But there is now really good research showing which organizations are effective. And what The Life You Can Save does, and I invite listeners to go to thelifeyoucansave.org and have a look, um, is it, it aggregates that research and it recommends those organizations of which we can be highly, highly confident that they will make the best possible use of 
charitable donations. So that's an important message to get out because I think a lot of people do want to be generous. They do want to help people less privileged than they are, but they don't want to waste their money very sensibly. So, so they need that information. So you're addressing two problems there. You're addressing the problem of extreme poverty, but also the problem we were talking about earlier. How do you get facts and information in a, in a post-truth society? That's what we're trying to do, but I suppose there could be other people who, you know, who would say, well, they've got a different view of it and uh, um, people might have to choose. At the moment, the, the, the organisations like The Life You Can Save um, that are doing the research, I think, are all pretty much on board with the basic criteria for what we ought to be looking for and how we ought to do that research. So uh, at the moment, I don't think it's too difficult to distinguish the real research from uh, anything else, as long as you're an evidence-based kind of person, as long as you are not the kind of person who says, well, I, I saw this photo of a happy child, and so that must be a good organization, so I'll give to them. Um, clearly, there's lots of that out there, and it's not a very <laughs> good way of choosing the organization to donate to. One of the protesters in Washington last week held up a sign, a, a young man held up a sign that said, uh, what do we want? Evidence-based policy. When do we want it? After peer review. But uh, getting evidence into public policy discourse has always been difficult. It seems to be a particularly difficult moment now. I don't know what's happening in this area. I actually, um, I was invited uh, a year or so ago to Washington to give a talk to uh, USAID, the United States um, uh, International Aid Bureau. And I was impressed by the people there. Um, they were you know, concerned about evidence, um, concerned about using USAID as effectively as possible. Of course, they were a bit frustrated that there were political decisions about how much aid should go to some countries rather than others, and that wasn't always the best. But within those constraints, they were doing what they could. But I have no idea what's going to be happening now. I've just seen that Trump has told people in the State Department uh, and I guess other government departments that if they don't like the Trump program, they should leave. Uh, and that's a pretty frightening prospect because um, then you may well get people who don't care about evidence at all. And on that somewhat frightening moment, uh, Peter Singer, optimist, activist, philosopher and writer, thank you for joining us today on The Policy Shop. Thanks very much, Lynn. It's been great talking to you. The Policy Shop is produced by Owen Hahasi with audio engineering by Gavin Nabar. Research in this episode was by Ruby Schwartz and Paul Gray. Copyright, the University of Melbourne, 2017.